Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. A slightly short show this week. Um, basically, it's, it's going to sound kind of lame. I finally decided to take my old uh, MacBook Pro. I mean, it's not old. I mean, it's one of the newer ones, but one of the first generation of the newer ones. Yes, the ones with the dodgy keyboard. I finally decided to go and get the keyboard repaired under Apple's extended warranty program. And I'm using my backup Windows Linux machine. And oh my, how difficult it is to switch operating systems when you have got used to one for decades. <laughs> so I am very, very unproductive right now trying to figure out how to set things up and how to use things and all sorts of wonder that you suddenly realize you need to set up when you haven't set up a computer from scratch in nearly 20 years. Anyway, uh, and hopefully also the audio quality here comes out okay. I know my interview later, which is with Patrick McFadden of Datastacks, um, of um, uh, Apache Cassandra, amongst other projects. Um, I suddenly realized Audio Hijack, which I normally know, use for recording interviews, does not exist on Windows. Um, so we just took the Zoom recording, which is not going to be as good quality as it normally might be. But the interview was great, so hopefully stick around for that. Enough complaints, enough disclaimers. Let's get started with my links for the week. First, an article from Andrew Leonard on One Zero. This is entitled, The Blockchain is a Reminder of the Internet's Failure. Now, this article may not necessarily be what you think. In fact, it's quite a pragmatic article. He's not necessarily criticizing blockchain as a concept or as a technology, but more as a way that engineers have a tendency to create solutions without ever asking people what problem they had uh, and how that the internet tried to do this in the first place and then kind of reinvented itself and that um, blockchain is kind of a manifestation of this engineer's way of thinking. It's not even a particularly new article. I'm not entirely sure why it popped up on my Medium Digest. <laughs> I guess because I've been looking at a lot of blockchain articles maybe. Um, but I enjoyed it, and uh, if if you feel that way, and actually this this harks back to many interviews and conversations and articles I've covered in the past. This aspect of making sure that you solve problems people actually have, as opposed to just creating technologies that solve no one's problems apart from your own and maybe a select handful of other individuals. So enjoy, and your comments, please. As always, you can find contact details at christianchiller.com/contact. I'd love to hear from you. Next. Somewhat fitting, this is from ZDNet, but obviously was widely reported. This is particularly from a friend of the show, Stephen J. Vaughan Nichols. And this is an article about the Iowa Caucus app and what went wrong. And I heard more detail on this, I think, on uh, Tom Merritt's Daily Tech News show, actually, uh, where they went into a bit more detail about the companies behind it. These companies have names like Shadow. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this up. Um, and how it was completely untested, how there was no backup, and it was a real... It, it's a shame, actually, how every time there has been a proposal to use digital solutions for voting, it has gone terribly wrong, meaning that that anyone's chance of wanting to do it well is always set back by another few years. Um, and maybe one day we'll actually get this right, and there will be online or digital voting but in the meantime, I think we're going to be sticking with paper a lot longer. It has its flaws, but I guess it's easy to recover from. It's easy to implement. It's lowest common denominator. Everyone can understand it, etc., etc. But it's such a shame that this story or this 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 case, I suppose, 
not only was a negative for digital voting, but also for the Democrats as well, uh, and gave Trump a lot of ammunition against them and how they couldn't organise a proverbial piss-up in a brewery. Maybe. That's not exactly what he said, I don't think. But anyway. <laughs> uh, so it's a shame on many, many counts. Um, and the and the company behind it, I think I used to work in agency as well, and I, I like to think I worked for a good agency, but how many agencies just kind of pump out things for as, as little money as possible and don't necessarily build the best quality they could either. So a whole combination of problems there leading to this unfortunate situation. Next, an article on quartz from Dan Kopf. This is a wonderful, wonderful article. And I, there's been a lot of this in the news recently, I guess because of the new version of the release after 37 years of MIDI 2.0. <laughs> and MIDI was also featured in, uh, in our book. I did not enjoy as much as I would hope. Um, you, what was it? It was, uh, you, uh, are not a product. Oh God, I can't even remember the name of the book, but, um, how algorithms are running the world basically. And he complains about MIDI there as well for sanitizing music. And the article goes into this a little bit. The current or the, the old implementation of MIDI was very restrictive and kind of dictated how music happened, especially when MIDI was very popular in the eighties and, uh, uh, less or so around the seventies and nineties as well and how many people kind of uh, recreated music to suit the style and that MIDI suited keyboards and not stringed instruments or brass instruments and the subtleties that were lost in music because of it. But no longer, MIDI 2 actually um, goes, goes deeper, adds a lot more subtlety. And maybe, I mean, MIDI has obviously had a bad name, well, not a bad name, but a reputation for such a very long time that will this version change people's opinions and how quickly will software and operating system and hardware operators incorporate it to mean that it could finally become an expressive protocol. Uh, I'm interested to see, actually. I'd be interested to follow the, the the progress of it and when devices start coming out to support it, and, and software, of course, and and what kind of creations emerge. I, mean, I, remember, the, I remember when, well, I don't, when, I guess they're still made, like MIDI guitars and things, but they were always very odd. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see how that would happen now, because obviously with with guitars, unlike pianos, traditional pianos anyway, you can't get you, you can get like weird bent notes and quarter notes and do all sorts of things with strings and winds that keyboards don't allow you to do. So it'd be interesting to see how MIDI 2.0 represents all those. Happy birthday, happy happy anniversary after 37 years. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Next, an article on Dig, actually a website I haven't ever really mentioned before, but this is from. Uh, businessfinancing.co.uk originally. And um, I'm not going to go into much detail here, but it's, I love maps, and this is a map of all the oldest businesses from every country on a map. And actually, um, I was expecting to have heard of some of them, <laughs> and actually haven't heard of most of them. Um, and it's interesting to see per continent the, the kind of companies they are. So in the new world, they tend to be primary resources or banking. And in the old world, they tend to be uh, actually breweries, is one, distilleries, things like that, proving that people have always uh, needed to drink uh, when they went to the bank or when they went to work, I suppose. Um, if, if ancient mapping and history kind of interest you, then take a look. And I suppose it's interesting to see the, the differences between yeah, the new world, Australia, America, Canada, etc., and the old world and the ages, the relative ages of those businesses as well. Anyway, take a look. It's a nice little map. Not much more to really mention, but uh, just take a look. And um, yeah, uh, do, are any of these businesses familiar to you? <laughs> it would actually be an interesting question to answer on com slash contact because I haven't heard of most of them, but maybe you have. And now an article from uh, Danny Van Kooten, just his private blog, 
And this is fairly swift. I would have actually liked to have maybe seen a little bit more detail, but um, it's a, certainly an interesting opening conversation on a topic that we kind of know about, but we ignore. And this is CO2 emissions of websites um, and and how he went into to some lengths to try and reduce the CO2 emissions of his websites uh, as much as he could, I suppose. I mean, if you're running on shared hosting or any kind of cloud hosting and you can't even really guarantee where your site is going to end up, it's like if you so so here in Germany we we often have to split water and um, heating bills between the whole house. So if you save, but then someone else uses a lot, then I don't know how much have you accomplished. And I wonder if it's similar here. If your website runs perfectly, but everyone else in your sort of hosting provider's VPS is running inefficiently, then what have you accomplished? Or if they run their business very badly, what have you accomplished? I don't know. It's, but it's a fascinating thing to start thinking about. And how you can optimize your websites, reducing dependencies, every tiny kilobyte that you reduce means less CO2, I guess. So if you're interested in starting this conversation, it might actually be someone I try to do an interview with on the show, actually. Um, but uh, take a look and then I'd be interested to, to hear your feedback on how realistic you think this is and what real impact it will have on CO2 emissions. And finally, I'm rounding off with two airplane stories. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I keep getting these airplane stories. But the first one is from Scientific American, and the headline is slightly scary, but um, I mean, I suppose we have decades of proof to make us feel a little more comfortable. And this is called, No One Can Explain Why Planes Stay in the Air. Or to be more precise, there are two schools of thought about why planes stay in the air, and uh, no one has quite decided which one is true. We know how they take off, but we don't know how they stay. And uh, that's something of a, <laughs> a scary thought, but quite amazing to think that something that is used so widely and we know really very little about how we accomplished what we accomplished. And whilst that's a little bit scary, it's also kind of cool and, <laughs> and kind of amazing to think about it. So, yeah, if you're not about to fly soon and don't want to, to be scared off the concept, then uh, have a read. And I suppose this ties nicely into the CO2 emissions. But anyway, um, yes. Uh, how, why do you think planes stay in the air? Which opinion do you go with? And there's some great, it is a scientific website, so there's some great details about each theory. And uh, I'd love to know which one do you think is true? I'm not quite sure yet. I hadn't ever given it much thought. I think generally I don't want to give it much thought. <laughs> I suppose it's one of those things where sometimes you're just like, I don't actually want to think about how this is working, but it is. And I will just be happy with that fact. And finally, another article from ZDNet, but covering a slightly different angle from Catalin Kimpanu, uh, called, <laughs> this is a sl another slightly scary uh, title for anyone uh, who travels a lot by plane. Only three of the top 100 international airports pass basic security checks. And before we go any further, let's, let's just recap who those three are or where those three are. And uh, Europeans will be very happy because it is Schiphol in uh, Amsterdam, Helsinki Airport and Dublin Airport. So three European airports. And uh, I have actually been to two of those. I've been to all three, but two regularly. And they are very nice airports, actually. So this was more about cybersecurity, the apps, um, systems, and, and things like that, um, and whether they use best practices for cybersecurity. And, I mean, we, I think we've all seen how shonky some airport applications and technology are. And I guess, you know, everything is as strong as its weakest link. So if um, an airline is, is focused on security, but then the airport security around it is weak, then what have you accomplished? So, yeah, um, interesting. 
And this included some very basic things like using HTTPS, which you would hope was just standard these days. A proper setup of email servers, using uh, firewalls, and removing uh, vulnerabilities from mobile apps. And, and to be honest with you, like... This is kind of, maybe this, this feeds back into the Iowa caucus problem. These feel like such basic things to be checking and any developer should be checking. And is it just money saving? Is it incompetence? Is it not updating? What is it that is causing these problems? It, they seem such basic things to fix. Like pretty much every service recommends fixing these sorts of things now. So how do these problems get created in the first place? I think is the more concerning thing to think about. Um, maybe next time you well, you don't fly from any of these airports, which is leaves quite a lot left, maybe you should complain. Maybe you should point out the problems they have and the vulnerabilities caused and, and complain. And I, I know my own experience of complaining to airports never gets you very far, but you can give it a go and maybe enough people will make the industry change and become better and follow pretty basic best practices, some of which will not even take half a day to fix. So really, some with some of them, there are no real excuses. Now, enjoy my interview with Patrick McFadden of Datastax, where we talk about Cassandra, Datastax, the company, and some of the other products that Datastax produces and, uh, and maintain. Enjoy. I'm Patrick McFadden, and I, I work in developer relations. I also work in the Cassandra community, in the project and user community. Um, I have for 10 years more, um, since early days of Cassandra. So I, I've been around since... Uh, I mean, I, I know all the characters in here because I've been around with them. Um, Datastax was a company that was built <laughs> specifically for Apache Cassandra support and services and just being, you know, as, as open source projects em emerge and, and become mature, there's usually a commercial company that pops out. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty standard trend. Well, we're that commercial company that popped out for Apache Cassandra. Um, our co-founder Jonathan was the the first project chair for Apache Cassandra, um, and we actually started out as a company called Riptano, and later changed our name to Datastax. But that's what we've been doing for the past, say, ten years. But um, just uh, trying to grow Cassandra into the biggest, baddest database on the planet, and um, Figuring out how to make bring it to enterprises, which is tough because you know the open source software fails at the enterprise gateway, uh, and finding a way to make it easier for them. Mostly, it's around support and services, um, but also building our own distribution that um, that hopefully solves a lot of the you know, ticks a lot of boxes. But uh, we have multiple things that we do now that are in support of that. Like um, we're getting ready to launch. Uh, we're in beta with our cloud product. Mm -hmm. which makes that easier. Um, we have some other products that are uh, coming soon, like AppStax, which makes the data modeling better. So we're just continuing to advance the needle uh, on all the products that are, that are required and needed. But um, probably what's most interesting for you right now is we have a new CEO, we have some new direction, and it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Oh, I, I think I'm more interested in digging into some of the technical stuff, but let's go back a step. I that. will go into the technical stuff because <laughs> our CEO is very technical. <laughs> let's, let's go back a step. Um, Cassandra is reasonably well known, but let's go back a step. So from memory, yeah. I can't quite remember. It was born out of LinkedIn or Facebook, I think. Face, well, it was, it was two engineers at Facebook. Uh, Avinash and Prakash were engineers there and uh, the the fun part of that story is Avinash was a 
one of the original authors of the Dynamo paper. Mm, okay. And yep. he and he worked at Amazon, went to go, you know, this is how engineers go, right? Is they, he was at Amazon, went to go work at Facebook, um, said, hey, that Dynamo thing was really cool that I worked on it at Amazon, but I think that, um, I think it'd be better if we changed the data model. Mm-hmm. So they, they developed it around the Dynamo model, the Dynamo, not Dynamo DB, like you can buy it. Amazon. Ah, okay. That's, yeah. The Dynamo. Not paper. that. Yeah, the Dynamo paper. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people assume they're the same thing, but I guess. (laughs) No, and it's funny because I think that that was like when I think they just said, wow, that's an awesome name. What can we use it with? (laughs) Um, And because it's not the same, uh, it's not the same database. But what's cool about it is um, I think that they they tried to take some of the same concept. uh, Dynamo paper was originally a key value store. But it was trying to answer the question is how do we keep a database online 24 seven mm. um, and deal with enormous amounts of failure or like an entire data center going offline. Um, because if you think about it, Amazon's in the business of making money and from everything I've read lately, they're doing a good job at that. Pretty well. And when you're offline, you're not making money. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But let's, I, I actually, there's a lot on the, the, the usage side I'd like to dig in, but I just like to get one more bit of the backstory because there's interesting in that with most Apache projects, the the company and the Apache project are generally fairly well connected. But it's interesting that Datastax was not the company that originated the project. Um, or not not the initial company anyway. I'm sure you've been involved from very early days, but is there a particular reason that Datastax kind of stepped in as the main um maintainer slash kind of overseer as opposed to Facebook or is that just company culture or? Well, Facebook is not in the, uh, there lately have been a little yeah. better stewards of open source projects like Steward, Rocks. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stewards. Yes. Yeah. That's what we, that's how we call it. We don't call it owners. There's no owners in open source. It's stewards. Um, uh, they, Facebook has done a better job lately. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's, there's also some debate there, but that's not their business. You know, it runs their business and they're happy to make it an open source project. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, the reason DataStacks exists is because the project chair, and this is kind of, this is kind of a fun and interesting part of it is you think of companies like MongoDB mm. um, or Mongo who has MongoDB, mm-hmm. they own the whole thing. It's not an Apache project. It's theirs that they open source and they can do whatever they want. They own the trademark, they own everything. So that's, that's in the, that's in pure top down open source company. Apache Cassandra is an Apache project. It is owned by Apache software mm-hmm. foundation. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, how DataStacks got involved. Well, well, DataStacks became a company from the project chair okay. of Apache Cassandra, Jonathan Ellis. Um, so there was a, there was a connection there. At that point, Facebook had not put any energy into Cassandra and Avinash and Prakash. Um, that's why they donated it to the Apache project. Okay. Interesting. And just out of interest from Datastack's perspective, you just mentioned you're coming into beta with a cloud uh, offering on top, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a difficult time to be doing this. We know. We, we can talk about that later, maybe. Um, but so what has Datastack's been doing apart from that in, in terms of a monetization strategy for the core open source project? 
Well, support and services are, are more or less the, that's the bedrock of open source, trying to make money around open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we, we sell a licensed product. It's an enterprise and it, it adds a lot of things like uh, particular security things, integrations, um, those sorts of things. I mean, I think primarily what, um, when you talk to a large company, uh, you know, a fortune 100 company, and they're looking to implement open source, they get really nervous about just doing it on their own. Um, and they, they have the resources they could, they could put engineers to it. And that happens. Um, Apple employs a lot of Cassandra committers mm. because they have that kind of cash, but they, you know, they're also, um, in the mind of, well, we can also rent that too. <laughs> um, and so, when when we work with uh, enterprises, they're like we we believe in what Cassandra is. I mean, we how the technology works is awesome, always on, scales like crazy, multiple data centers, perfect. That's what we want, but we want a little more, and we're willing to pay for it. That's it's a perfect opportunity for DataStacks to create a great relationship. Um, the database isn't going to fail you, and we're going to make sure you do it right. Okay, and. I mean, we know this space is is relatively busy, the sort of NoSQL space. There's still, it's not as much as it used to be, but still kind of new offerings emerging. But Cassandra does have something of reputation for working pretty well on large data sets. And it obviously comes from, from, from creators who are used to it. Uh, I'm looking on the Apache page uh, and you mentioned Apple. They have... And I think I remember when they switched over to Cassandra, 75,000 nodes, which seems ridiculous. Um, I think the latest one is like 150 <laughs> or 200,000. Um, yeah, there, so DataStacks Accelerate, which is our user conference in May, mm. um, Dinesh, he's like the spokesperson for the iCloud engineering team that runs Apple. Um, he, I'm waiting for, he, and he does this every time. The first slide he puts up is all the numbers. And they're always ridiculous. I mean, petabytes of storage, bazillion nodes. I mean, they, it, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's one of the highlights of the conference for sure. It's actually quite interesting looking at these numbers because Apple has 75,000 nodes with 10 petabytes. Netflix has 2,500 nodes with 420 terabytes. Oh, terabytes, sorry. I missed, I missed a few zeros there. That's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Rounding error. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then added to that is also CERN. Uh, GitHub, and many others. I'm skipping over a few here, but just ones that especially a technical audience will will understand and appreciate the kind of data throughput they're probably going through. So what do you think at the core, what do you think made Cassandra so well designed to handle this kind of capacity in the first place? That And that is exactly what Cassandra is, is the way it was designed. Um, And this is the... The magic sauce is how it started. And I'll go back to the Dynamo paper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really the la- it's the only data- it's the only database that grew up and made it out of the Dynamo paper that has usability. I mean, it's usable. So um, the, the three things that are really important are, are the scale, um, the way it scales. I mean, it can go from zero to petabytes and uh, it's designed to do that without having any downtime. You can do this online. Um, it's the speed, uh, it is really a fast database. Mm. Um, very rarely do people say it's not fast enough. Um, and then, and then in the resilience, um, you know, the, the way that it replicates data, 
and the, because it's an, um, an availability and partition tolerant database. That, that was the, the two, you know, out of the cap theorem, uh, consistency, uh, availability, and partition. Cassandra was built around availability and partition um, with tunable consistency. That AP part is, so you think of every business needs availability and partition tolerance because this is the world we live in. Like I said, Amazon had it right. Like we're offline, we're not making money. Mm. And you look at all the, the list of companies there, they're like, yeah, we can't deal with an hour of downtime because our database went sideways or we lost a data center. Um, you just have to be ready to deal with failure. So Cassandra started with that. Mm. And what's fascinating to me is you see databases now that have, you know, older databases, you know, like relational databases that are trying to glue on these features um, like replication and things like that. And it's just, it's a mess. It's hard to work with. And it isn't very resilient because it's an afterthought. Um, that wasn't what it was primarily designed to do. So when you look at that list of companies, they're like, yeah, we, this is, this is what we need and we're going to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned that, you know, it's been a long time. That's the thing is we've proven it. It's been it's been in the most critical production workloads on the planet, and it has held up just fine. It's proven, and I love it when people throw fud at Cassandra. I'm like, that that's like saying the moon doesn't exist. I mean, come on, <laughs> or the Earth is flat. Well, you're I mean, believing in something <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Let's not too, dig too deeply into that one, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could when you hear this stuff, it's like, well, Cassandra will fail, and it's not good enough. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Can we get over this now? It's great. <laughs> on, on on that point, though, one one of the 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 facts on the the Apache page that jumps out at me is this: every node in the cluster is identical. Yeah, I have encountered a few distributed databases that claim this. And there's always kind of, it's always not strictly true. Uh, is that completely true with Cassandra? There are no concepts of um, masters and nope. other. Yeah. I, I, no, I can't it's, think it's of a, more appropriate words these days. That yeah, the leader follower. Leader follower, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 no one's quite decided on the, the, the consistent replacements to those horrible words yet. But yeah. Anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. There's no elected leader. And um, though. Any, any um, you noticed a very important thing. All of those databases have elected leaders are more, they have a consistency first. So they're like CP databases right. or CA databases. Yeah. And, um, and which are most or, or if not all of the other databases in the world. Um, so of course, but no, Cassandra is definitely a shared nothing architecture. And so um, of course there's, uh, they're not super, not like every node stores all the data. That would be, Ridiculous, um, but it's architected in a way that each node stores a certain percentage of the data plus replicas from other systems, and it's mm -hmm. a very consistent way to do it. We use consistent hashing to do this. Um, it it, it uh, is deterministic. We can, we know where things are. It's not random, um, but um, that the way that basic architecture of that ring architecture works really well. And yes, so if you lose a node it doesn't bring down your database. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, it, I used to do this thing with uh, raspberry Pis. Um, yeah. I'd have a small raspberry Pi cluster set up and I would 
have it, you know, have a, an outside client like pounding away at it. And I would take a hammer and smash the shit out of one of the, the nodes. And I mean, of course, for effect, but everyone was like, what happened there? And the, the application doesn't even blink, doesn't even yep. flinch. Yep. 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 This is, uh, I have seen a few distributed databases. Uh, do Actually, maybe I've seen you do that. I have You might have seen me do that. I did it on stage with a fire axe. Yeah, that's a blender. Familiar. I've definitely <laughs> seen people just pull a pull a, a knock or a pie out of a cluster, but uh, destroying it is more memorable. And I have definitely seen someone do that. So <laughs> I did it, it at OzCon uh, one year, and it was it was almost semi controversial. People were really upset about how violent it was. <laughs> I was like, all right, it's it's a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, anyway, well, we had a drill and we were drilling through them. I mean, it was fun. <laughs> I would uh, shut it. I'd actually like to see what the pie is doing whilst you're doing that. As well. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was some. We had to really we had to test it a couple of times because what I was worried about is it shorting <laughs> and causing a fire. And I'm like, okay, we can't have a fire in the expo hall. <laughs> Wow, I'm actually frankly amazed that something that small would cause a fire. But anyway, well, you know, electricity. Yeah, yeah that's true, that's true. <laughs> and this is, you know, that's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the database going down. I'm worried about <laughs> a little node causing a fire. <laughs> oh, that, that's that's a headline in itself. Venue caught yeah. on fire. Database okay. <laughs> I, see, all right, Chris, you and I get along great because I I am in the PT Barnum school of there's no such thing as bad news. <laughs> One more quick question on Cassandra itself, and then I'd just like to ask a couple of quick ones on data stacks a bit more. And that I think maybe maybe one of the the few negatives, uh, especially for people starting with Cassandra, is this custom query language. And I just, I mean, to be honest with you, I think back in the day this used to be in comparison to SQL. And I don't know how many big application users these days are really coming from SQL backgrounds anyway. So maybe the comparison doesn't matter so much, but have you noticed any kind of difficulty in people understanding that or are the sort of SDKs and wrappers so mature now that most people are just doing queries through those? <laughs> have you been a fly on my wall? Uh, no, just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a current conversation for sure. Um, but I'll tell you the CQL language, Cassandra query language was, and I was involved in that design mm. early days because it's meant to be familiar instead of having, Hey, let's have yet another query language out there that is just completely unfamiliar. Let's build it as a subset. Now there's good and bad. Um, but my, my hypothesis has always been everybody comes from relational. Everyone knows relational mm -hmm. databases. So you know, the syntax, you know how to insert data, insert in, you know, insert into table where, you know, values where, I mean, all these things are there select from where that's a pattern you understand. Um, I think what gets people into trouble is then they start thinking, well, this is SQL and they start doing things like joins or yeah. full table scans. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I spend a lot of my time educating users on, and I, we start our training. Um, we do these workshops all over the place, these free workshops. And um, the first thing I say is, all right, I know you all have SQL background. Awesome. I'm going to explain how to go from there to here in a language you you are familiar with and i'm going to show you all the sharp edges and explain why this is the right language to get the data out um and it, it just go, and really we could skip the rest of the day and just go into the primary key how it works um you know i mentioned the primary key or i mentioned like how the data is distributed that primary key is the key to your success and i think what you 
there's a light bulb moment once people get ah that's what that's what the primary key does yeah um and this is how it works for me and my data model and then we're off to the races okay and coming back to data stacks i see that i mean whilst the cloud offering is coming and the enterprise offering you've mentioned i can see you have some other things as well uh, you have a, a graph database, intriguingly. Yep. You also have Kafka connectors and a few other, and also Kubernetes and containers tools. I mean, um, are these basically just from ob- observing how people usually integrate Cassandra into their application and you figuring out the places where you can help with that? Or are these very separate offerings? There, yeah, it's, if you think of Anyone deploying Cassandra, of course, it's, it's not an island. It doesn't just exist with no other connections to the world. Um, Kafka is a great, uh, great example of getting data from point A to point B. We're probably going to be point B. Um, so let's make that work. We also have, it also uses our CDC, on the, uh, where when you insert data into the database and it's committed, it emits data. So um, we also feed into a Kafka queue. And so into a topic. So, um, I mean, Kafka is an important part of our ecosystem. The Kubernetes thing is developing and stay tuned. We're going to be at KubeCon with a bunch of stuff. But um, that, I think that's just, we know that that's the winner, (laughs) good or bad. That's the winner of deploying large infrastructure. And if we're not supporting it in a really important way, then uh, we're not helping people get it done. Um, so there's more coming there. That that's actually one of those things that we're really working hard to improve and change the story on Cassandra and Kubernetes. Okay. Um, yeah. And what's the graph database then? Uh, graph is uh, is an interesting debate. I was just at Graph Day in Texas, and you know, it's it's there's this raging debate right now: is graph a is graph a product or a feature? And uh, I think without a doubt, so our graph, what our graph is, is um, it's a top-down graph, uses Gremlin, Tinkerpop, uh, open source, um, Very, this is very much rooted in open source, another project. We support two projects mainly. It's Tinkerpop, Apache Tinkerpop, and Apache Cassandra. But um, we're looking at doing things like how can, how can we use graph you know, in really interesting ways? Mm. Because it is very useful. I mean, um, and this is the quick takeaway on what graph is, in my opinion, is, you know, where Cassandra is, um, is completely denormalized data sets. Um, graph is infinitely normalized. Mm-hmm. Everything's a relationship. Mm. So you're covering, I mean, you're, you're, you're railing on both ends of the spectrum when it comes to data models by that. Um, it, that to me is the most exciting part. I want, is there much crossover or do people tend to implement both or one or uh, it's yes it, that's what we <laughs> continue to see is yeah. it's not that's why it's like it's a debate is it a feature or a product because um very rarely do we see people just implementing graph only i mean it mm-hmm. does happen but it, it's like oh i want to i want to map a relationship to something and then go deeper into the data with something like Cassandra. okay and aside from KubeCon, which I now will be at as well. <laughs> so Excellent. Lots, lots, lots coming from there in, in a few weeks' time. Um, what else is on the roadmap for the next six months? Uh, for data stacks or? 
or for the project? <laughs> Actually, both. <laughs> Let's say both where they cross over. <laughs> both with the crossover. All right. Well, we we are doing a lot, as much as we can. Cassandra Ford Auto is a probably the biggest friggin' deal of the project ever. And the reason being is because it is, um, I think all of the committers, the PMC on the project uh, operators, the biggest operators have agreed that this has to be a, a, because it's so much data on the world relies on it. The reliability has to be the top. And so um, what's exciting to me, and I know it's taken a long time, but it's, it's going through some of the most incredible testing you've ever seen. And there's some open source projects that are going to pop out of this around correctness testing of databases. Okay. But um, here's, here's the interesting, and Chris, I haven't told anyone else this yet. So you're the first one. <laughs> um, the commitment in the project is the largest operators want to put Cassandra Ford Auto in production mm. before they say it's worth releasing. They want dot zero to be the best database that they can ship. Yeah. And, and some of the testing goes on like here, we'll move a, move a petabyte of data. Now, did a single byte get lost in that movement? Okay. Yeah. Oh, there was, let's find out why. Um, you know, it, yeah. this is, I, this is why it's exciting for me. It's because I don't think there's any database in the world is, is going to be this solid and steady. Yeah, I've heard. I've definitely interviewed companies that are kind of doing this as a bolt-on, but um, this is first class. Yeah, that, that's that's quite interesting. And does that also relate to things like, um, oh, like, like sort of developer environments? The ability to I don't think necessarily applies to Cassandra, but the the ability to kind of collaborate on data, like you can with version control in code. There's a it's not, it doesn't go up, yeah. we're, we're, st- we're talking baseline. Like um, what happens whenever you're, an, a new node is going into the cluster, like adding mm. to the cluster and you turn it off. Okay, yeah. Um, bad That's, things happen all uh, the time. So more time. like a kind of chaos engineering element, I guess. That oh, it's embracing chaos like it's your best friend. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm guessing there's a lot of work there with Netflix. Um, they're kind of kings and queens of that sort of uh, domain. <laughs> oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And it's and it's funny because, you know, Netflix I think popularized it. There's some there's some great companies out yep. there. Like Gremlin is a company yeah, that I've this work. In the past. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 they're weaponizing it for sure, but <laughs> everybody does it that is, you know, it, you you like here's a CIO discussion that is fun to watch someone squirm. You yeah. talk to a CIO and say, "Can I walk in during your peak period like uh, a retail company in the U.S. like Walmart or Target, you know, big company like that. Can I walk into your data center and unplug anything I want? And <laughs> if if the if it's a nervous shuffle and a no, then you're not ready. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And will you be demoing that at KubeCon at all? Uh, our Kubernetes operator? Or no, no. The the for the four dotto features. Uh, I not a KubeCon. KubeCon is much more of an operator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so accelerate. We have quite a few Ford Auto talks going. Um, and yeah, I'm getting ready. It's funny you should mention this. I'm I'm working on a pick list as we walk up. We're on Alpha three right now. 
of okay. on the Ford Auto project. Um, we're talking beta here in a couple of months and okay. uh, full release by hopefully summer. And uh, again, it has to be in production. That's that's the contract everyone is like on board with, and that'll be really amazing when that happens. We should talk then, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can um, just unplug some things whilst we're talking, and we can see. What right, it's like, hey, Chris, I'm <laughs> unplugging things as we go along. Um, I don't usually do video, but that that might be uh, <laughs> worthwhile. But you mentioned you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, developers. That's something the data stacks we're doing right now. So there, there's some stuff developing there that's really interesting, like mm. working with. Um, not working with non-driver access technologies like GraphQL, REST, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. We want to we want to open up Cassandra to the rest of the world. Like right now, it's really great with Java developers. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's funny. Our number two driver download is uh, our top three are Java, Python. And Node.js. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so JavaScript developers in the world unite. Uh, we want to we help you out too. <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, final question I always ask, even though I generally get the same answer, is there anything we haven't covered that you just want to make sure you mention? Uh, boy, that, I mean, <laughs> get out there and support your local Cassandra. We are looking for contributions of all sorts. So. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's always going to be my message, and that'll be my one last thing. That was my interview with Patrick McFadden of Datastacks, talking Cassandra and many other things. I hope you enjoyed this show. I hope to have my backpack back soon, but it's going to take a couple of weeks, unfortunately. Now, travel. Uh, I'm going to be in Manchester this weekend, just for fun, but say hi if you want to. Straight after that, a few uh, about a week later, going to be in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Jerusalem for Megacom, Tel Aviv again just for fun, but always happy to meet people. After that, I'll be at South by Southwest. Um, definitely happy to meet lots of people, enjoy some tacos, enjoy some good American craft beer. A little after that, uh, I think the next trip after that is I'll be back at KubeCon in Amsterdam, going through that wonderful airport. Um, and I think that's all my travel booked right now. So uh, I'd love to meet you at any of those. And maybe some more I've forgotten about. Keep an eye on kristenschiller.com slash events. Writing, uh, I have quite a few articles coming out actually very soon and getting back into the blogging a bit more regularly. Uh, just keep an eye on slash writing on my website for all those updates. And there's going to be a lot more coming over the next couple of weeks for some new uh, customers as well, actually. So, And also stuff on design as well. So enjoy all that. And uh, please rate, review, and share if you enjoyed the show. It's very, very important. He helps me keep growing the show and getting new audience members. Sign up for the newsletter version if you haven't already. And so much more. All at christianscheller.com. If you have been, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 